1 John chapter 3, and beginning our reading at verse 4. This is God's word. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. This is a a time of the year when many churches around the world will uh, turn their attention uh, and celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus. And we celebrate births uh, and birthdays all the time. We remember the moment of life uh, when someone has been brought into this world. And it is a time when annually we celebrate uh, the gift of life. But when Christians and when churches celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus, we're not simply celebrating another life. We're not simply uh, commemorating uh, an event that took place when a new life came into this world. But when Christians gather to celebrate the birth of Jesus, we are doing so because of the significance of his coming. How would you describe or how would you explain the significance of Jesus' birth into this world? There's lots of ways we could go about trying to answer that question. But this morning and this evening, we want to begin to unpack how the Apostle John answers that question. Because as we come to 1 John chapter 3, John is trying to explain the significance of Christ's coming. And you'll notice that in chapter 3, John uses a certain key word again and again. It's the key word appearing. And you'll see that John comes back to it again and again. It's a word that means manifested. And John here can concisely summarize why it is that Jesus came into this world. And this morning, we want to just begin to unpack that. We want to just start to see how John answers the question by looking at verse 5, where John says that you know that he came into this world. He appeared to take away sin. And we want to think about that, and we want to be able to come away understanding that because Jesus came into this world to take away sin, we have reason to celebrate. And we want to just meditate on this one single verse this morning by thinking in two thoughts. We want to think first, what did Jesus come to take away? And then secondly, we want to think, how exactly does Jesus take it away? It's interesting that oftentimes when we think about Christmas, we think about gifts, we think about giving, and we celebrate God's gift to us in the Lord Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we think about what Christ gives to us. He gives love and joy and hope and peace, and all of that is good. But you'll notice that as we're coming here to this text this morning, John is saying that we can also think about Christ's coming in terms of what he takes. And so we want to think about this verse and those two thoughts. Well, first then, what is it that uh, the Son of God came to take? Uh, He came to take away sin, as it says there uh, in in verse 5. You know that he appeared to take away sins. What is sin, though? We might use sin in a, in a whole variety of ways. We might 
uh, use it very casually in conversation about what we should and shouldn't eat. Uh, it would be a sin not to. But what is sin actually? We, in our catechisms, we define sin as any want of conformity unto or any transgression of the law of God. What does that mean? It means that when the framers of our catechism were writing about sin, they said you can look at sin in two ways. Sin is the failure to live according to our design. It is a lack of conforming to God's will. It is not living up to our purpose. But then the framers also said you can think about sin not just negatively, what it's not. You're not what you're supposed to be. The framers were saying you can also think about sin in a positive sense. It is breaking God's command. And so they were looking at it in these, these two lights of what you're not doing, but also in what you are doing. But when Scripture talks about sin, it not only says that this is what it is, but it teaches us that we are all sinners. There is none that is righteous, no, not one, uh, that we have all turned aside, we have all gone our own way. We are all corrupt. And generally, that's not a very contested issue. Not too many people go around objecting to the fact that they are sinless. Um, but it's not the universality of sin that really rubs people the wrong way. Oftentimes, it's the seriousness of sin that rubs people the wrong way. There was a survey that was done just last year in the United States, and it asked uh, Americans uh, questions to uncover and to reveal something of their own beliefs. One of the questions in that survey said, they were asking them, do you agree or disagree with the following statements? One of the statements was, Everyone sins a little bit, but basically, by nature, we're all good people. Everyone sins a little, but by nature, we're basically good people. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? And in that survey, two out of every three people said they agreed with it. That, yes, we sin. Yes, sin is universal. But basically, at the core, we're good people. The only reason people sin is because of external factors. The only reason people do bad things is because they're in bad situations. If they had a better upbringing, if they had been taught better, if they weren't exposed in that situation, they would never have done those bad things because they're good people. And many people believe that idea. The problem is, is that Scripture itself doesn't. Scripture itself teaches us that from my birth I have been sinful. From my mother's womb conceived. Sinful from my first beginning. And the Apostle Paul teaches the same truth. He teaches that in Adam we are sinners. The reason why we universally sin is because we all share a corrupt nature. The reason why sin is so universal is because that's who we are. And so Scripture itself says the reason why when you look around the world and you see people sinning, it's because of our nature. But there was a second question in that survey that was also revealing. The second question that was quite revealing was, it said, do you agree or disagree with the following statement? That every sin deserves God's eternal punishment. 
Every sin deserves God's eternal punishment. And again, the survey respondents came back with every two out of every three respondents were united in their answer. But this time, two-thirds of people responded in disagreement. No. No, not every sin deserves God's eternal punishment. Maybe the sins of Hitler. Maybe the sins of Mussolini. Maybe the sins of tyrants who have oppressed their people. But not every sin. Not the sins that I commit. Those are just small blemishes. They're not serious. Maybe that's where you're at even this morning. Maybe that's how you look at sin. But what it's doing, that question is, is it's revealing something of how we look at sin. How big of a deal is sin? Is the sins I commit really a big deal or not? And what scripture teaches us is that sin is not just something pervasive. It's not just something that we see all around us universally. But scripture also emphasizes that sin is something serious. Sin is more than just a character flaw, in other words. Oftentimes that's what people treat sin like. Yes, I'm an angry person. I'm bitter. I resent and I hold grudges. Yeah, that's, that's who I am. Deal with it. That, that's my character. And we just kind of hold on to it as though we can justify it. Yes, I'm, I'm a very selfish person. That's, that's, that's who I am. It's my flaw in life. I just live for me. And we, we think of it simply on the level of that's my character or that's my quirk. That's my personality. But scripture looks at sin not just as a, a reflection of your character, but it looks at it much deeper and much more broadly. How does scripture teach about our sin? Scripture does say it's a, reveal, a revealing of who we are. Isaiah, as we read in our call to worship, called the people to come and to reason together with their God, that though their sins were like scarlet, they should become like white as snow, that they would be cleansed, that they would no longer be blotched and stained. Our sin is a blotch on who we are. It reveals something of our corruption. We are people who are corrupt, and our sin shows that. It says something about who you are. Not just what you've done, but who you are. But we also see the seriousness of our sin, not just in the fact that it's a blotch on our character, but we see it as something serious because of something Jesus said. You remember in John's Gospel that Jesus himself said that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. What's a slave? A slave is someone who's lost their freedom. Jesus says when you commit sin, it is evidence that you have lost your freedom. You've lost the freedom to live as you were intended to live. You're no longer able to fulfill God's purpose. A slave is someone who is now under the influence of another. They're under the control or the power of another. And it is to their own detriment. And Jesus says that's what sin is. It's enslaving it is something that is destroying you. It is something that prevents you from living as God had determined and purposed. So sin is serious because 
it exposes our corruption. It's serious because it shows that we are actually lost our freedom and that we're actually under the power and the influence of something that is trying to destroy us. But we also know that sin is serious because the Apostle Paul himself says, the wages of sin is death. We go to work during the week. We get paid for our labors. Our activity is rewarded with the payment that we are given. What's the reward of our activity in sin? Paul says it's death. That death is not just something neutral or natural that happens in this world, but it is something that comes as a result of sin. That we shouldn't look at death and just embrace it as, well, this is the way it's supposed to be. Scripture says death is the punishment for sin. And that's why we recoil at it. So sin is something serious because of the blotch, because of the slavery, because of it brings about death. But notice John himself gives another explanation about the seriousness of sin. In verse 4, John says that sin is lawlessness. What is lawlessness? It simply means anti-law. What's the big deal about being anti-law? John is saying that when a person sins, they are anti-God's authority. Maybe you go shopping during the week and you go down the aisle of the cereal and you see uh, a parent, a mother, or a father with their children and they're going by all the cereal and one kid, one toddler sees a, a certain kind of cereal and they desperately want to get that cereal. And the parent turns to little Johnny and says, no, put, put the cereal back. And the toddler has a meltdown and then uh, doesn't want to do it and they turn to the parent and they say, no. What is the toddler doing? They're expressing hostility towards their parent. Why? Because they want something else. And what Scripture says is that we are like children who resist God's commands. And when God tells us something for our own good, we respond by saying, no. We want to live our own way. And that is, that is one of the, the virtues that we hold so dear in our own culture today. We live in an age of authenticity where we want to express ourselves and everything about us we want to be able to give expression to. And so anytime we live or hear of authority, we want to push back. But what Scripture is saying is that when you push back against God's commands, it's showing the hostility of our own hearts. Sin is serious then, not because it's breaking just a golden rule that people have all agreed to. Sin is serious not just because it shows some of the flaws in your own character. Sin is serious because sin is first and foremost an act towards God. Again, that's what David taught in Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned against. Meaning first and foremost, my actions are acting towards my God. So yes, sin is prevalent. We all sin. But sin is something serious. And as John is trying to explain the significance of Jesus' coming, you notice that John begins, or John here emphasizes, the problem. Jesus came to take away sin. 
because sin is so serious. If we don't grapple with the bad news of the seriousness of our sins, the good news of Jesus' coming isn't so significant to us. It won't become good news. It loses its bearings. And so John wants us to understand the importance of Jesus' coming by bringing before our minds the importance or the seriousness of sin itself. So there is what he came to uh, take away. He came to take away sin. But how exactly does he take it away? Again, there back in verse 5, John says, you know that he appeared to take away sins. John is echoing what was stated in his gospel. You remember John's gospel and how it begins. It begins with the words of John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. After 400 years of no prophets, some man in the wilderness is declaring the word of the Lord. And he's drawing people's attention to this Jesus of Nazareth. He is directing them and identifying Jesus as the Lamb of God. And now here's John alluding and echoing that same statement in his epistle by saying, you know why Jesus came. He came to take away sins, just as John the Baptist said. And he did that as the Lamb of God. How does Jesus take away sins as the Lamb of God? Well, as we were reading in Leviticus, it highlights what the Lamb of God or the goat was going to accomplish. It was in this twofold ceremony that the people would learn how their own sins could be taken away, how they could be forgiven before a righteous and a holy God. And we read of that uh, in Leviticus chapter 16. In Leviticus 16, it says, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it the iniquities of the people of Israel and their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. What were the two ceremonies that happened on the Day of Atonement? There was a ceremony of substitution. There was a ceremony where Aaron would lay his hands on the goat and he would confess the sins of the people on that goat. And then they would actually drive that goat out into the wilderness. And the people were to learn through that ceremony that the burden, the weight of their own sins is symbolically being transferred to another. That they no longer have to bear that guilt and shame because of the work of a substitute. Someone takes away their sins so that they are no longer plagued by them. And they could watch that goat leaving the community and have that relief of knowing that the problem has been dealt with. We might have the same experience uh, every two weeks. Uh, I know personally that one thing I look forward to now is garbage pickup day. When the garbage truck comes and empties the black bin, and there may be things that you're just desperate to get rid of, and it's such a relief to see the garbage pick up and to be taken away, and you know you're no longer troubled about those broken items in your house or those all that junk. It's gone. It's no longer hounding you. 
And that's what the people of Israel lived with every year. They're watching their sins go away from them. And they're realizing it happens not because I got my life together, not because I started trying really hard, not because I I weighed out the scales and I made up for my wrongs by doing more good. They recognized it's by a substitute. It's because there is a Lamb of God, a Lamb that the Lord has appointed that would take the sins away so that we are no longer judged. That's why the people sang Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far our sins have been borne away. Their sins were taken away. And now John uses that same language. Why did Jesus come into this world? He came to take away. As far as the east is from the west. So that we would no longer be plagued by sin. But there was another aspect to the Day of Atonement. It wasn't just a substitute that took place that day. There was a sacrifice. There were two goats. And the second goat was killed. And the blood of that goat was then sprinkled on the mercy seat as a sin offering. That a goat had to die. And so it was through the death of that sacrifice that the people understood that their sins were removed. Because a sacrifice has been endured. That's what scripture teaches. Without the shedding of blood, without death, there is no forgiveness of sin. God will punish every sin, either on the sinner or on the substitute. And Scripture teaches without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But as John here celebrates in this letter, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Jesus is that sacrifice that takes away the sins of the people. When Christians celebrate that there is a Savior, that Jesus is the one Savior that God has given from heaven above, that all people are to look to, that there is salvation in no other name. Sometimes people get their backs up. Why is it that there is salvation in no other name? Why can't there be many ways to God? Why can't there be many routes to being reconciled with God? And what John here is doing is he is making us think about who it is that is this Savior. That this Savior is the Son of God, fully God, and yet who assumed a human nature. That the reason why he did this is because it was necessary. But also, as John says there in verse 5 at the end, notice what he says, you know that he appeared to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. Why does John have to add that? It's because John is emphasizing something peculiar about Jesus. He is sinless. He is without sin. And he is the only substitute that is qualified. He is the only one who can bear the sins of others. And he is the only one who can make us righteous. And so as John is celebrating this, he is highlighting something peculiar about Jesus. You think about how Christians believe in 
the, uh, the virgin conception. Uh, how uh, from the Virgin Mary, uh, Jesus uh, uh, was born. Why is it that Christians insist on that? They insist on it for this reason. Because Christians are confessing not just that Jesus didn't commit sin, but that Jesus didn't inherit sin either. He wasn't cursed in Adam. He wasn't born in sin like you and I. He was sinless. And so as the righteous one, he is appointed to make sinners righteous in his place. And so how is it that he can take away the sins of the world? How is it that he is the Lamb of God? It is because he is the one who is God has appointed as a substitute. And it is him who would offer up his life as a sacrifice for sin. He endured the punishment of sin at the cross ultimately. And he did this to take away the guilt of sin. But as John goes on to explain in this epistle, not only does Jesus come into this world to take away the guilt of sin, Jesus came to take away the power of sin. And he came ultimately to take away even the presence of sin. So when John goes on in verse 6 and he says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. John is not trying to insinuate that Christians don't sin. But John is saying a mark of a genuine Christian is, is that there will be a different view about sin. Instead of shrugging it off, a, sinner, uh, a genuine Christian is someone who is grieved about sin, someone who has a hatred against sin, someone who becomes hostile towards it because they look at it in light of the Lamb of God. And so they don't live or seek it but their orientation in life is now for God himself. That is the work of God in the spirit to change the way a person looks and lives. Not only is guilt of sin removed for a believer, but even the power and the attractiveness of it is being broken. And that's a work of God's grace. John here in that verse, he says, you know that. You know that he appeared. You know what John the Baptist said. You know what has been explained to you. And you have heard the message for many years, many of you. But do you know this yourself? Do you know why Christ came into this world? Are you living in response to it? Do you, do you take your sins to Christ? Do you believe that there is forgiveness of sins for your sins? Do you acknowledge why Christ has come? It's only then that we're going to have reason to celebrate. It's only then that we're going to know peace and love and joy and hope. But what John is emphasizing is, is that we must live in light of God's truth. We are to celebrate Christ's appearing because he accomplished something. He came to take away sin, and he succeeded. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.